Thanks for tuning in to the Empire Boxing Podcast. A huge thank you to our partners at Sting Boxing. It doesn't matter if you're into boxing for fitness, as an amateur, or as a pro, Sting has something for you. Head to their website, stingsports.ca, and use the code EMPIRE10 at the checkout to receive 10% off. An Empire Boxing and Unlearning Network production. Welcome back to the Empire Boxing Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jay, and we are in the studio with two very special guests today. We have Harry Davis is a CSCS Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist, a BJJ Purple Belt under Ben Dyson with, from the Roy Dean lineage. And Harry's been involved in martial arts since uh, the age of 12 years old, I believe, and got your start in Wing Chun. Yes? This is correct. Yes! He I cut his teeth that. in the gym as a teenager and has traveled all over the world absorbing knowledge and honing his craft. And I will say crafts, plural. Many crafts. You have many crafts. Very good at many things. Um, and Harry is now setting most of his focus on helping grapplers get stronger for competitive grapplers and hobbyists as well. Um, as, as well as regular you know, strength and conditioning clients. And then we have Jeff Chu. Who I've never met you in person, but mm-hmm. when you came through the door, I was like, I know you. You know, yeah, that's, We all it, know each other. I know. Instagram is so. a funny place. Um, Jeff's got a bachelor in kinesiology and is also a certified strength and conditioning specialist. And Jeff has played a pivotal role in helping athletes, both on a provincial, national, and international level. And currently, I mean, how we're all connected is you are the head strength and performance coach for Aquinnah Boxing Club, which is sort of our premier boxing club where the, the professionals are being kind of farmed out of Vancouver, which is a huge pride point for us. So welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for well, having thank us. Thank you very much. Yeah. And then Jeff, you're also involved in Muay Thai as well as, a, as an athlete, as a hobbyist? Hobbyist for now. For now, maybe I'll fight at the cliffhanger we'll of the century. Cliffhanger. Yeah, 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 maybe. What about Jeff? Yeah, right. Yeah, I've competed in like kyokushin karate okay. as a kid, and yeah. I've done powerlifting, but not like a professional fight. So right. maybe that's a challenge I'll take. Jeff, there's still time. The there's, there's still, still time. time. How old are you? Twenty nine. <laughs> Get oh, on it, son. Plenty, plenty. <laughs> plenty. Yeah, but plenty I'm also today. like, get on it, because go you're gonna have your pro debut against like a like a 20 year old or something. It's maybe how it like works. a 40 year old taxi driver. Yo, Bangkok. yeah. Do you know what? Honestly, <laughs> wait it out till you get to the masters division. And no, then there's no master. There's no master division. There's no out there. master. You just fight whoever, especially in Thailand. Oh my god. Wow. If the yeah. price is right. Yeah, if the, the price, price is right, right for like 20 bucks. I maybe. will. Yeah, bet my <laughs> chickens on you. Okay, cool. Um. I'm going to start with you, Harry. Give us a little origin story. I mean, I kind of gave you a little bit of an intro, but give us the the details of how you first discovered martial arts. So I guess the biggest one for me was when uh, our friend Bruce Lee got on my screen. And yes. I think someone lent me a VHS tape or a, uh, a CD-ROM. It was probably a burnt CD-ROM copy. Don't date yourself Enter the too Dragon. Bad there. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's how old I am. And I saw Bruce. And as soon as I saw Bruce, I lost the plot, basically. I was just like, who is this guy? How do I become like him? What's the deal? And I got my copy of The Art of Expressing the Human Body by John Little. And that was my Bible. I studied that thing and just for a couple of years, actually, before I could even get to a martial arts class. Went to a Japanese jujitsu class slash judo. After two weeks, entered a judo comp. I thought, this is pretty cool. And then out of that, realized the teacher wasn't too good. It was just like a community center kind of like kids club and wanted a bit more. And a friend of mine um, was teaching Wing Chun and he said, come down to the, the club. I think mm. you might enjoy it. And I was 14 at the time. I had a little part-time job so I could pay for my classes. Doing what? I was um, washing up dishes and pouring beers in a Chinese Malaysian restaurant. In the UK. In the UK. So it is legal for... 
a 14 Highly illegal <laughs> to pour beers we in the Chinese anyone, But I was wearing a waistcoat, <laughs> so who knew? Right. And yeah, so that was my intro to Wing Chun. And that then, that was it. That started the path down martial arts. I realized it was what I wanted to do in some aspect of my, my life. And yeah, I was coaching classes by age 17. And that was the transition then into jujitsu and, and all the rest of and it. And so. you've also had a few cage fights under your belt and kind of dipped into the MMA At the amateur level, world. yeah, at the amateur level in the UK, realized pretty quickly it's not how I wanted to make my living. Mm. And that's even more respect for the people that do earn their bread that way. Absolutely. It's brutal. So um, I realized I could probably help more people than I could knock people out and took a kind of career yeah. <laughs> turn. Um, I'm glad I tried it and glad I got in there and got amongst it. Um, but yeah, not for me as a job per se, but right. lifelong fan. Yeah. And then Jeff, same question to you. How did you cut your teeth in um, and get into what you're doing now and your proximity to combat sports? Well, like any other small Asian kid, uh, my parents <laughs> put me into uh, karate as like a five-year-old. Is that like the, it's like piano and karate? It's, it's piano right? and some sort of martial arts. I'm so glad I didn't get put into taekwondo though. I would have been so I feel like angry. piano is like the ultimate like equalizer of children, and right? Piano, it's yeah. like for white kids, it's soccer and piano. Right. That's what you do. So you were piano yeah, yeah. and karate wicked. So I was put into karate class at the age of five just for self-defense, um, and I kind of share the same sentiment as Harry. Like Bruce Lee was everything to me. He's from Hong Kong. My parents are from Hong Kong. Oh All the movies were awesome. Like I knew it was kind of choreographed, but at the same time, he was still like a hero to me. Mm. And not only is he a martial artist, he's like a philosopher. He was really big into fitness. I remember seeing like his fitness routines. Mm -hmm. And I would try to copy those as a kid, like push-ups, sit-ups yes. at night before bed. Yes. Um, I did karate, Kyokushin karate for several years. I stopped around my teens because I realized like, hey, why are we not punching each other in the face? This is <laughs> kind of dumb for a striking art. Yeah. So I got into boxing and Muay Thai just at like the local level, but never really trained it seriously. Mm -hmm. um, and for some reason, I decided to get into kinesiology. So being at UBC, I was probably one of the small handful of students that wanted to get into high performance SNC. Right. Everyone wanted to get into physio. So that's interesting. I, w I always yeah. figured people kind of go into those programs with like, oh, I want to work with athletes at a high level. And then they eventually realize that, that it's actually really difficult to do that. And it weeds a lot of people down to physio, but you thought the opposite. I didn't have like an end goal in mind right. when I first joined the university. Like I, I almost wanted to get into engineering or music. Hmm. But I just kind of stumbled upon that. Um, and then I started working as a personal trainer, working with kids, like soccer moms, like parents. And gen then pop. Kinda. Gen pop, yeah. yeah. And then I slowly got into powerlifting and weightlifting, knowing that I always wanted to make the full circle back to combat sports, which is what I've been focusing on since 2018 or so. Right. And how did you know, know that? How did that I you know? wanted to end up in combat sports. Because I always liked it as a kid growing mm -hmm. up. I always watched the UFC. I was probably one of the first person, first people I knew that watched MMA in high school. So yeah. I always loved it. I love the culture. I love watching it. I love training. So Yeah, amazing. And so I wanted to, because uh, you both have traveled quite a bit, quite extensively um, for both like, you know, pleasure levels. And then also I think um, 
it's kind of lent itself well to research and development, et cetera. I wanted to get both of your perspectives on like the differences mainly between Canada, SNC and other parts of the world. So H, why don't we start with you? What have you noticed kind of working both in the UK, um, possibly like, I guess, New Zealand, Australia, your experiences there, how is Canada different and how they understand what SNC is and how it's applied? Well, Jeff can probably attest to this for his time spent in the UK as well. Some of the main differences I've noticed with West Coast Canada, because I can only talk for West Coast Canada, is that SNC seems to be more locked into the main national sports. Mm. Canadian football, ice hockey, um, a little bit with soccer, a little bit with rugby. That seems to be about it. Uh, and I'm talking from the perspective of... SNC being more of a household name, i.e. if you grow up in an ice hockey program in the west of Canada, you probably will be exposed to strength and conditioning of some sort along your way or some sort of athletic trainer of sorts. In my experience in the UK, there's a broader range of pro sport available at a high level. So rugby, premiership rugby, premiership soccer, mm. uh, SNC is part and parcel of those industries. Um, less so though, interestingly, in the UK and high school realm. So in the UK, we don't really have strength and conditioning coaches, or at least when I was growing up, you didn't have S&C coaches in the high school programs. Hmm. Whereas I feel like actually there might be more of a chance in the West Coast of the, the Americas and Canada's to be exposed to S&C in the high school program. Right. So um, although we don't have that in the UK in the high school setting, we do in the pro sport setting. Right. And there's a load more sports to choose from. University upwards, strength and conditioning is pretty pretty prevalent amongst the competitive teams, the mm. first teams, as it were. And they tend to be a funnel and a gateway into the, the premierships and, right. the, and the big leagues. Um, so, yeah, I would say the UK is, is a, probably a little bit further ahead in terms of strength and conditioning for sports, just because there's more sports mm -hmm. and more people. Right. However, that's not to say that stuff like ice hockey and... And, and the field footballs over here aren't impressive either. They, they, mm. they truly are. But there's just fewer people, I think, on the west coast of Canada right. total. So as a result, there's just going to be less exposure to something right. yeah. niche like sports performance. And Jeff, what, would you, what do you think? Yeah, as an SNC coach, there's definitely less avenues in Canada. Um, there was no route for me heading out of university. It's either you work in, I think it's called CIS, Canadian Institute of Sport, working with volleyball players, hockey players. But as someone who's never been involved seriously in team sports, like that wasn't a route that I saw myself going down. Mm. So not having an established route for, I would say, how would you say that? Like private sports, like yeah. professional sports, yes, like combat sports. It was a bit tougher to navigate through the industry. Right. Yeah, I bet. I think there's also a misconception just around like, I think like if you sampled most people, I think personal trainer and strength and conditioning coach get kind of blended and that, that title gets thrown around a lot. So oh, for yeah, people 100%. that are maybe listening to this and maybe don't really understand the, the differences, do you want to kind of unpack that a little bit and tell us like, what are the main differences between a personal trainer and an SNC coach and why personal trainers shouldn't use that title if they are not CSCS certified? I think both coach to a certain degree, uh, personal trainers, I would the main difference is the population that you're working with. Personal trainers work with more gem pop. Um, they want to work with primarily with people who want to lose weight, gain muscle, muscle hypertrophy. I would say SNC coaches work with athletes who have an end goal in mind, like a competition goal, a competitive goal. Mm -hmm. And that's probably yeah. just more the depth of the education involved on the S uh, CSCS side that can kind of take someone from 
Because ultimately you guys are working with, with athletes that are, you know, quite proficient already in their sport, quite fit in their sport condition for their sport. So you're taking someone from good and making them great, mm. which is way harder than taking someone from, I've never squatted before and I want to lose 10 pounds. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe that's kind of like where that misunderstanding gets thrown around a lot. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating topic of conversation and something that I've wrestled with through my own career, mm. um, trying to gain recognition in, in both fields. I think the big ones that stand out for me is the lack of quality control in personal training. Now, that's not to say there isn't a lack of quality control in strength and conditioning, but in general, it's assumed that if you're in the S&C world, you have some sort of education behind you, right. whether that's a certification, uh, an accreditation with an organization, a degree, uh, in the trenches experience, internships, etc. Personal training... There's no real legal prerequisite to call yourself that. Hmm. You can do a certificate in 12 weeks, in 12 hours, online, make one up, Photoshop it, whatever. It doesn't really matter. And you get a huge spectrum too, right? There's people yes. who have been in kinesiology mm -hmm. and decided to be personal trainers. And then you have people who are off of, you know, IT made a career switch and because they enjoy doing bicep curls on the weekend. Yeah. The, 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 the laughing joke, I think, is that personal training pays the pills. Yeah. yeah that's fine. Well, and that's in, like in, that's in, in sport too. You see that boxing clubs don't make their money on the pros. They make their money on their members, you know? Yeah. It's where the most, where the biggest market is. Yeah. And arguably the market for personal training is much greater. But I think the quality control is something that sets it apart. Ideally, strength and conditioning should be based on science and studies. Personal training has no um, kind of dependency on that. There's no, there's no command that personal training should be based on science. It can be based right. on whatever you want. Yeah. And really it's based on results, isn't it? If your client's happy or not. Mm. And even that is, you can... You, what, how do you define results, right? Exactly. It can be a sweaty t-shirt for some people. You can, exactly. You can yeah. move the goalposts a lot. Yeah. So I think S&C now, unfortunately, it's been used as a marketing term, like you said, for personal mm. trainers to get more clout. Um, and most S&C coaches won't admit that they have to do personal training to pay the bills, but that's just, that's just the, the lay of the land. Right. I think there's some key differences, but ultimately we're doing similar things like Jeff said, where they're both coaching. Yeah. And you could argue that actually to be a good S&C coach, you should cut your teeth with personal training with gem pop. Oh, I think you can learn so much from the so gem So one pop. does yeah. feed into the other, mm. I think. That's um, where I think every S&C coach should start. Mm. Interesting. Because it's also a running joke that everyone that comes out of university wants to train professional athletes yeah. and they realize that they're going to be training gen pop for the for sure. first few years. Yeah. Sally had a hip replacement. Yeah. And, needs to and that's almost Truly. just as difficult as training prof professional athletes yeah. in a sense. It's just the fact that we work in sport. So there are consequences to our coaching. It's like yes. there are wins, yeah. there are losses. It's not like, oh, we lost 10 pounds versus 11 pounds. It's hey, we lost a championship or mm -hmm. your fighters are on a losing streak. Mm -hmm. So there are yeah. consequences yeah, to 100%. competition. Yeah, right. I think that's the biggest difference. It's we're working towards a competition, which has consequences. Yeah. That's, and, you know, if you work for an organization or a sports team or a professional athlete and they're on a losing streak, you will be held accountable your for that. Your name is You now, will be brought yeah. into question of what you're doing, mm -hmm. what your practice is, you know, explain yourself. Whereas in personal training, the client might just leave. Right. Right. That's the only real consequence is you might lose a client. And, and even then you might not lose a client. You might yeah. just do a crap job for your entire career, which you see with some personal trainers. You see that. So the consequence is big. And you'd hope then because of that consequence, there's a higher quality control and a yes. standard for S&C. Yeah. Again, that's not true, but you would hope so. You would. You would hope. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think in the in the 
personal training world, there is an element of the personality that can kind of like shift off for the quality or maybe the education or maybe the practice, right? Whereas an SNC is like, okay, cool. If you, if you have this like star studded personality and you make your, you make your way onto UFC embedded, but if you're not doing a good job, it's pretty fucking obvious. Right. Um, and so on that topic, like we're seeing that come into mainstream media around sport a lot more is we're not just seeing, you know, the Eddie Reynoso's and the guys holding pads and stuff, you know, the shout out to all the old boys just still taking kicks. Right. Um, we're, we're also seeing their SNC coaches and we're looking into the camps a little bit and how important important do you guys think that is for what you do when you see that shown on UFC embedded and shows like that super important it shows that we can actually make money and be kind of noticed same with sports nutritionists I think it's great that these UFC embedded show like the whole interdisciplinary team right yeah from the psychologist to the sports nutritionist to the SNC coach I think those are all professionals that build the athlete together, not mm. just the head coach or the pad holder. Or- yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a, a nice change in the last five to 10 years is now it's not so much about last man standing. I've got one coach, you know, like the Rocky style and, you know, I've raised him since yeah. he was a youngster. Now there's a whole team, like Jeff says, behind them. And these are all studied fields, right? Sports nutrition, sports psychology, S&C, they are based on studies and science, like science is backing them. Mm-hmm. So they're respected fields, like the data is there now to, to push forward and create champions. Mm. Uh, and I think it's great as well to see the exposure that there is a team behind an individual. Right. And that the old gladiatorial model is perhaps a little obsolete and we can actually use science now to... Um, to unleash potential in people to become champions mm. rather than whittle away the competition until there's one person standing, which was very much the UFC Ken Shamrock days of the late 90s. You know, yeah. if you looked at their training camps, it was very much just like, oh, who's left after yeah. seven hours of fighting? Okay, you, you, you're eligible to you're eligible to <laughs> go in. Yeah. Back. You know, yeah, <laughs> no, no time limit around. <laughs> all, the <laughs> physio, the yeah, all the physiotherapists and chiropractors like, yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Make us rich. But like, also, also, I think that having the exposure and the lights on sort of the other elements of the camp, apart from like the striking professionals or whatever, I think is, do you also think it's contributing to... Um, improving the quality of who people are sourcing out for their strength and conditioning. Like, you know, I think some of the first videos that came out where you'd see like, yeah, exactly. Like the strength, it's like, you know, the, the, the med ball and the abs kind of thing. And they're like doing some ridiculous stuff that was been part of boxing since the dawn of time, like a thousand pushups after you've been striking or sparring for 90 minutes. So what do you think it's done to improve the quality of that in the public eye, as well as in the professional eye? That's a great question. I think uh, a lot of it is still illusion. Hmm. If you're looking at the media of like, you know, social media, the Instagrams, the YouTubes, because when you look at an embedded episode, okay, I love UFC embedded. I don't know quite why, because it's just people the eating and walking around. The production level is so good though. And it, it draws you in from an emotional side. I'm a huge fan too. People huge love fan. vlogs, especially from yeah. professional yeah, fighters that they've been following. Like yeah, the gay like how many, doing How many a day in the life of yeah. Yeah. I've eating, watched like, Even from the days of UFC All Access, <laughs> I used to watch that back in like the 2009s, 2008s. I used to love it. But I think with that, you, it doesn't tell the whole story. Okay, so very often you'll see the media in an embedded episode, let's take that as an example, showing some exercises for the peaking portion of a fighter's camp. But some people can think, wow, that's the whole camp. Right. That's all fighters do is 
you know, landmine punches yeah. or whatever it is. So coming back to that. I think, I, yeah, <laughs> oh, oh, we will. Oh, oh, we will. I'm just going to throw an asterisk. Oh, <laughs> but I think, I think, I don't know if it's improved the quality of SNC or not just having the exposure. I think if anything, it's raised the level of awareness that SNC is a thing and that if you want to take fighting seriously, boxing, MMA, grappling, you should probably look at your SNC seriously if you want to be competitive with that. As for the quality, mm. I'm not sure because there's still a lot of people that are getting airtime mm. that are just doing dog shit. Right. So and partly, you know. do you think that's part like they're trying to pick their most flash movement for the the sake of the episode? Because like honestly, if you if you did like neck isos, no one, everyone's like <clears throat> during that section of the. But if you're doing some like med ball slam or some landmine punch or something, it looks more flash. Do you think there's an element I don't of that know. too? That would depend on the direction of the media team, wouldn't mm. it? If the if the director says I want something cool and kinetic, yeah, then the trainer will be like, okay, this Got is you. normally what we do. I, right. I would bet on it, but let's do some battle ropes and, and med yeah. ball slams because it looks cool what on. What does that do to Instagram? Well, it drives the views. Sure. Yeah. But then you also have what? Like you have a whole like a whole population of people, again, to your point, that think this is what it's yeah, all about. That's, but that's the byproduct of exposure, isn't it? Yeah. If the exposure isn't accurate, well, that's just how it goes. Fascinating, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's almost like, would we take exposure over quality? Mm. Would you rather people take you seriously because you say I'm an S&C coach? And that they still think all you do is, you know, rope slams and sort yeah. of med balls or, you know. Yeah, one of, of our coaching, mutual coaching friends calls it uh, performative exercises. Basically, yeah. exercises for the gram. Yeah. Right. And that drives views. Yeah. That's just you play into the algorithm. But I don't know if those kind of coaches last in the long term. Because hmm. their results eventually speak for themselves. Yeah, good point. Quality will always withstand. Yeah. Should do. Like Quality we said earlier, consistency. you're accountable for the outcome of the yeah. sport, right? Yeah. Maybe not directly, but yeah. you're part of the contribution for that. So your practice will be called into question eventually. Mm. I do think, coming back to the personal training versus SNC, that if you ride on personality as an SNC coach, you can get further than you can with riding on quality mm -hmm. because you can build rapport and the relationship will carry you further mm -hmm. than perhaps your actual skill set will. Mm -hmm. I've seen that time and time again. Not just in that industry. Either. Yeah, well, arguably in everything, right? Mm -hmm. Like like our, our friend Arnie says, everything is selling. It's yeah, like yeah, if yeah. you can sell. <laughs> Wait, what was that? Yeah. <laughs> if you can sell, then yeah. you, can, you can last. Impressions, right? all podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've got some accents lined up for you later. <laughs> with uh, Dead Man's Fingers Rum, our official sponsor. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Let's bring it back to, uh, it's, it's great to have you guys both here because, you know, you have a similar perspective, similar education, but also kind of operate in different fields, but all under the umbrella of combat sports, which mm -hmm. is why I think we can get a lot of really cool back and forth and some dialogue going on the topic, which I think a lot of uh, our, our fans will think is really interesting because everyone's about it. Um, so what I wanted to ask, and I'll leave this like you guys can kind of vibe on this a little bit, but what is the main difference between um, the SNC programming for a grappler or MMA? Let's open that up as a third silo and then boxing. Debate time. <laughs> no, no, Debate time. Well, Jeff is the at the forefront really of of the semi-prime pro boxing snc in this corner of the world right with the guys you're working with so maybe yeah we're kind of both in combat sports but on different ends of the spectrum the ends you of the work spectrum, with a lot yeah. of grapplers i work with primarily strikers yeah um yeah so what I, are the main things that are consistent i guess and what are the main things that are are, are different how i break it down to people is in grappling you move bodies 
you have to lift them, you have to move around move them. Around them. Yep. Um, yep. In striking sports, you're primarily moving your own limbs. Mm. So the biggest difference is going to be strength differences. And how does that um, impact your exercise selection? For various, uh, for I guess, striker, components of the yeah, camp. Yeah. For strikers, you're le lifting less absolute load. You're doing more high-velocity exercises that translate to the sport, which is higher velocity than grappling. Mm -hmm. And in grappling, you would lift heavy weights, so you could get better at lifting heavy weights and right. heavier people. And heavier people, yeah, throw, being competent with your own body weight, but external yeah. to you mm -hmm. in various yeah. forms, mm -hmm. whether that's a human, a barbell, sandbag, doesn't matter. Are you competent with that? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think that's really that's interesting. That's a very simplified yeah. but explanation. Important, an important simplification. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it's first principles levels. That is the two differences of the sport. That is the distinction. Mm -hmm. You can't hold in boxing, right? So why practice holding? Right. Right. It's like you want to practice, like Jeff says, high velocity, because that's where the damage comes behind the shots. And you're limited to just your hands for boxing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you got sports like MMA and Muay Thai, where, where you have a grappling component to it. Mm -hmm. And then how yeah. that changes training is you're doing a bit of both, maybe 50-50. Yeah. You're lifting heavy weights, but you're also moving your body quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And arguably MMA, because it's such a demanding skill set as an entirety, less is more mm -hmm. in the strength side of things, or at least in the weight room, because there's so many skills to learn. Muay Thai, boxing, grappling, okay, it's more just that sport. Mm-hmm. But MMA now you're you're into a whole oh, lion's den of options. Yeah, so it's always actually, blown my mind. it doesn't need to be that crazy. I don't think in the weight room really. You right. need a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So you would suggest keeping the strength training simple because the the dis the uh, the disciplines outside of that are there's way more complexity there. Yeah, arguably, I mean, Jeff can chime in on this as well. But for an MMA athlete, we really just need them to be able to train their skills enough to be competent and not fall apart in the process. Mm -hmm. The injury rate is so wild in combat sports anyway. <laughs> really, we're just trying to reduce that so that they can get in and fight. Now, obviously, you're still going to follow some principles throughout their camp and follow some kind of timeline and mm. some structure there. We're not just doing one exercise in the weight room and calling it a day. Right. But it's, it's the simplest, weirdly, in terms of content, I'd say, out of all the combat sports because it's the, probably the most demanding and the, the most variable. Yeah. There's mm -hmm. just so many variables of MMA. Right. I would say the programming is complex, but like load management, dealing with the injuries, that's very complex behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. Sorry, I, said, I meant yeah. to say programming is very simple, but right. the load management and the injury yeah. management, managing athlete schedules, that's way more complex. It's way more complex because yeah. of the variables. But if you looked at the, the actual program on paper, it wouldn't be too baffling. Right. But you need to have the brain from the SNC coach's perspective behind the scenes that's where the complexity comes in because you've got to know how to simplify in such a way that hmm. it's still effective. Hmm. And that differentiates a beginner from an expert. I think beginner yeah. coaches will chase the complexity in MMA, yeah. whereas experts will simplify the program. That's and on paper, it might yeah. not look like much, but you're doing right. a lot of things externally to make sure the program goes correctly, their scheduling is right, their fatigue management is on point. Yeah, mm -hmm. fatigue management's huge. Mm -hmm. It's huge. And yeah, you're right. <laughs> The beginner is likely, likely to fall into the trap. Well, it looks like the sport, so let's do it. Um, right. this got this got a thousand exercises a session or whatever it is. Right. Um, yeah, more complex than it yeah. needs to be. But you need to have the experience as a coach to be able to whittle that away and just be left with what's actually going to work. And like Jeff says, the fatigue management across a camp, let's say, 
or across week to week is huge mm-hmm. because there's there's so many sessions that they've got to complete on skill sets. Mm-hmm. Really, we're one small cornerstone of the pyramid that right. leads up to competition. Right? right, there's a lot more going on. Which, to be fair to Jeff, actually is one of the first coaches to really talk about bridging the gap between skills coaches and SNC to communicate that because. If you're left in the dark as an SNC coach, trying to manage an MMA fighter's fatigue management is quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you can communicate with the team, yeah. now you've got a, a chance to really work together and steer that towards a, a positive competition. Right. That must pose quite a few challenges then when you're working um, like with a group of athletes or even an individual from a remote perspective versus mm-hmm. actually being able to be face-to-face in session, watching their training, seeing the fatigue for yeah. yourself. How important is it to be able to have effective right. communication with your athletes? Super important. Um, I would... L- be lying if I sat here and said like I if I work with athletes remotely I get to see all their training sessions I get to talk to their coaches that just doesn't happen (laughs) I work with what I can right sometimes I'm in touch with their coaches sometimes I'm not and I have to work around that so just being flexible as an SNC coach and knowing where you can make a difference is really important yeah what's the key 20 percent that you're going to invest in that's going to make 80 percent of the yeah. The gains come. And I think line of questioning is super important when you work on a remote basis as well for the right. for the coach's perspective. Like you've got to ask the right questions. And what's funny about fighters is there's a personality complex there very often with blokes and machoism <laughs> is you don't want to ask them, could you could you have handled more? You know, right. that kind of right. it's a loaded question right. for a fighter. They're like, well, yeah, of course I could. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you have to be really careful with yeah. the questions you ask. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. they'll swing like, the so result deter, response. Like yeah. the fist on the chest. Yeah. Especially fighters, like they yeah. always want to do more. For sure. Always want to do You've got to reel them back. Because it's a uh, of their toughness almost. I, I honestly yeah. think that is a, a mentality that is a bit, <laughs> well, it's widespread and it's also detrimental. Even for gen pop, there's this, there's still a, a massive misconception around people that are, you know, excited to train or invested, have invested in their training where they more is more. And there's like, oh, I, I, I push myself to exhaustion every session. And they don't really understand why and how, how it's important it is for an athlete to realize that that should not be the end game of the SNC component, at least of their camp. Um, so it, it's really interesting to hear you guys kind of talk about this and kind of unpack this because I don't think people really understand what goes into it. And yeah. I think the grind is like romanticized through like movies, like Rocky and stuff. Rocky. I think the grind on. to me is staying disciplined from day to day and doing things that right. you might not want to do from a recovery standpoint. Like, it's way less sexy. Yeah. yeah. Less sexy. <laughs> the reality is way less yeah. sexy than the screen yeah. depicts it to well, be. Well, it's interesting. I won't name names, but I've, I've chatted with... Um... Drop the names after. <laughs> <laughs> I've chatted with boxers that you yeah. work with. Like, and when they first started with you, yeah. um, I was like, oh, how was it? You know? And they were like, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's like not that hard. And that's seen as a negative. Give me the names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Give me You know, but... Um, but how important is sort of that like 70%? It's really tough for coaches to hold back because like, let's say I work with an athlete for the first one or two weeks and they're oh, it's not that hard. It's really hard to create buy-in that way. When the workouts aren't hard, they feel like they're not being challenged. Yeah. But I think long-term always, I assume that these athletes are going to be with me for months. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really matter what we're doing now. It's what the end goal is going to be. And how do you effectively communicate to an athlete that says to you, oh, it's, you know, not that hard, that that isn't mutually exclusive to their not training in a correct way for the long-term results? How do you communicate that to someone? Um, maybe small, like, weekly wins. Like, I'll say, like, hey, if you're 
training too hard, you're going to get too sore for boxing or mm. for your skill sessions or for grappling. Um, kind of letting them know the consequences of training a bit too hard, maybe letting them feel that for a few sessions. Right. But yeah, I think also if you can communicate the concepts of like a periodized approach in real time, mm -hmm. in layman's terms to the fighters, you've got a better chance. So you can explain that this is a, this is we're, we're achieving work here over time. So you might think the sessions are easy now, mm -hmm. but we're just starting, you know, mm -hmm. we're on week two or mm -hmm. whatever it is. Yeah. And we've got an eight week camp or yeah. a 16 week camp or whatever it is. So if you can articulate that you know, suspend your judgment for this point of time. We're actually dealing with blocks of time here. I think that can help as well. They're like, oh, okay, yeah, right, it's easy for now. But, you know, that that's going to change. There's going to be periods where it's harder. There's going to be periods where it's easier. Mm -hmm. But just because it's easy right now, this week, this session, that's not the track record forever. Um, I, reeling in is a skill. <laughs> but I'd, I'd often, I, I don't know about you, Jeff, but I'd often reel somebody in versus crack the whip to get them off the couch. Yeah, especially fighters. Yeah, bleeding the stone yeah. is not fun for any coach. Especially fighters who have already bought in into SNC. Like, you know right. they're serious about their career. So you know they train hard. You don't have to crack the whip. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like it's a given. They're going to turn up. They're going to work hard, whatever it is. It's just a matter of what you put in front of them and communicating the the global level yeah. of fatigue and managing that sensibly along the way. Right. And we right. work with humans at the end of the day, so they all operate differently. Some might respond well to articulating about periodization and all the science. Other people might just have to suffer the consequences once or twice, come into each session a bit too sore, right. like, okay, let's understand why we're doing the things we're doing. Yeah, that's, in terms that's of interesting. And load management. Yeah, just make them feel it viscerally. Right. Yeah. If they come in buried. Not as a punishment, <laughs> like, but kind of no. like... As a yeah. one end of the spectrum, right? Yeah. You've given them the boundary of the far end. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is what overreaching feels like. Not fun, right? Mm -hmm. Like now you can't throw a punch because your delts are screaming. Yes. That yeah. kind of thing. And like, yeah, yeah that's a smart approach because that way they'll feel that for themselves. You don't yeah. need to now articulate periodization to yeah. them. It's like, yeah, see, sore sucks. You know? Yeah. Harry, why do you think that um, sort of the excitement about adding SNC as a component is kind of slower as, as, as in grapplers as a population than it is with boxers? I feel like boxers you, and MMA. You think that's true? I do. I, I've, well, and I could be wrong, and I can't wait to hear why you might disagree, but I, I feel like grapplers are slower to get on the, yes, I need to do my SNC train than boxers. Do you agree or disagree? I'm not sure because I don't have as much experience as Jeff with the boxing community. Yeah, okay. Jeff, I'm what do you not think sure. Then? I can only talk for the grapplers on that. I've coached a lot of grapplers, but I don't have a big enough sample size to kind of tell hmm. because I gravitate towards striking sports myself. So that's where my community is. Yeah. That's where um, I have the most knowledge. Right. So I think for grapplers, we're just broke as fuck. <laughs> so it's like, why are we going to spend more money on right. other things? Yeah, right? The gym membership costs this. It's a couple of hundred a month, whatever. And you have to pay to compete. You have to, yeah. you have to pay to compete. Like boxers you, and MMA athletes probably make more money on average than grapplers. Yeah, for There's sure. Jiu-Jitsu is a broke grapplers. sport. Yeah. There's no money it's in jiu-jitsu. It's growing now, but it's... Even so, it's comparatively. And I'm going right. to check in for a debate. The injury matrix of MMA and, and like jiu-jitsu or grappling is so much bigger than boxing so then you've got all these like guys and girls are all broke and broken yeah the, i guess the irony is is if they invested some of their money into s and c the injury rate would decrease which was my next question <laughs> but i mean that's now you're into that's not a household phenomena yet mm. 
for grapplers, right? That's just, it's just starting to leak into the periphery now that you can train more, but some of it is in the weight room and mitigate some of the injuries on the mat. But that's, that's only coming in now, I and, think. Right. And how does, I think, intelligent strength and conditioning limit your, or like reduce your risk of injury? Well, if the programming is, is smart and the, the execution is sound, then in theory, by inoculating the body to certain stresses and Inoculate. certain stressors, yeah, Great just word. little <laughs> mini poisons, yeah. mini stresses to the body, it will respond with a resilient response that then enables you to handle the training of grappling or MMA mm -hmm. in its entirety. It's just not as simple as that in reality because you're dealing with combat. You know, the point is to maim and injure yeah. and put somebody's lights out for the most part and or strangle someone. So, so injury is almost yeah. an, it's an objective of combat sports. Yeah. Whereas yeah. injury in other sports are like a consequence of accident or foul yeah. play. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, in combat, yeah. it's the aim. So to say that injuries are going to be removed, I think is naive. They're going to come at some point. Yeah. It's just in what degree of severity, what, what grade of tear, and how can you mitigate that smartly in the weight room mm. without increasing the risk of injury? Because we've all seen that happen too, where people push too hard in the right. weight room and now they're more brittle, strangely. Right. So, yeah, you, you can reduce the risk if it's done well, mm. but it has to be done well. Right. Yeah, like intelligent SNC happens in a more controlled environment compared to grappling or boxing, mm -hmm. where it's way more variable, way more complex. So when you can control those variables in the weight room, you can focus on specific body parts where you might not be able to during a live roll or during drills. Right. What do you see as kind of the most common um, dysfunction or um, let's say chronic injury that boxers elicit? Boxers, I would say knees and shoulders. Right. Shoulders because they overuse it and knees because they don't consider legs as an important training factor mm -hmm. for boxing. It's like, oh, it's, I have good footwork. Uh, boxing is a primarily punching sport, so I don't really need to train the legs. Mm -hmm. So because of all of, the, all of the bouncing and the agility, the knees get really worn down without proper strength training. Interesting. And yeah, how would how would you mitigate that if you were to you know take someone on who had uh, who was coming into boxing or was already like well into it? What kind of things do you add into the programming to? Could be as simple as full range of motion squats, mm -hmm. or it could be a bit more specific, like specific uh, hamstring work or knee over toes, right. knee behind toes, right. maybe. What do you say to people that are like, "Oh, I can't squat my knees." Like they they're, they're throwing you the, the right. very thing that you think you're prescribing them to improve their, the, the health yeah, of their knees. Ironic. They're like, oh, they I can't. can't squat because they don't squat. Yeah, exactly. So, mm, yeah, they've yeah. lost that. Yeah. So how do you, can like, so and this is a question I guess for both of you guys, because you've probably been in this scenario a million times where someone's like, well, I can't do that because, you know, my knees, I got no knees left or whatever. And how do you get that person squatting again? How do you convince them that it's the right thing for them to do? And how do you approach it? I mean, you learn this in personal training. It's regressions. Right. Making, yeah, yeah, yeah. making squat squats easier the for them. Yeah, squat body. to the bench, like yeah. at maybe just parallel or assisted squats. Mm -hmm. um, that's what coaching is all about, like dialing back the training so it's at a level where it challenges them because everyone's at different levels. You, you have boxers yeah. split squatting like a few hundred pounds, and then you have boxers that can't even bust out of like a bodyweight squat. So 
Yeah. You're working with athletes at different capacities. Yeah. And you also got to take into account, it's like that phrase, I can't squat my knees. We've got to dive a bit deeper than that. That's mm -hmm. pretty broad, right? That's pretty general. Like mm -hmm. why? What, what is going on with their hips? What is going on with their ankles? Well, like, I, I want to know why they say that. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to look at them squat too. And mm. if they squat like shit, well, that's a clue, isn't yeah. it? So like Jeff says, then then you access your your library, your database of like, how can I regress the movement to an achievable standard that's challenging right. and then work them through that continuum instead. Next thing you know, they're squatting. Yeah. Might not be squatting in the way they thought squatting to be in the first instance, but they're doing it. They're bending at the knee and they're flexing at the hip kind of thing, right? right. So you, if you're smart as a coach, you can, yeah, totally agree, regress the movement to a level that's that's suitable that's capable for the person in front of you um yeah and it's ironic right that when you don't do certain movements mm. you lose the capability to do certain movements but the that movement might be the thing that actually heals you up right it's a vicious cycle vicious like people cycle. who say i have no energy to work out but they have no energy because they don't work out yeah the catch 22 kind of repeats itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the yeah. coach's job is to shock that loop yes. and change that. Break the cycle. Break the cycle. Yeah. Yes. Now what injuries do you find are sort of the most commonly repeated uh, for grapplers? Yeah. I've been paying attention to this the last few years. I think the big ones uh, that come up are shoulders, knees, and lower backs. Mm. But to be honest, the grappling's about maiming and strangulation anyway. Right. So you could argue any joint really yeah. uh next as well seems to be common there's a lot of variables but a lot of it i seems to boil down to some interesting common denominators and for the knees especially i'm seeing a lot of it coming from the hip it's actually further up the chain hmm. whether that's instability or weakness of glutes and hip stabilizers whatever's going on mobility sometimes at the hip joint but often that seems to be transferring down to the knee with the lower backs, weirdly, a lot of it seems to come from upper back tightness mm. because of our grappling hunch, Quasimodo yes. thorax Gorilla. kind of was, thing. Yeah. It's, it, it's amazing how much stress increases on the lower back when you sort of calcify in the upper back regions. There seems to be a physiological adaptation the, that the is just hunch. across the board in combat sport, isn't there? You yeah, know? because it defends the midline and your yeah. vital organs. So there's a point it's to any position. Yeah. <laughs> yeah when you scare someone, they don't go like that. They go like. Yes. Yeah, for fighting, so you're contracted. Yeah. yeah. So and neurological a as well. You're neurological, yeah. 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 yeah, there's a point to that. Um, but it comes at a health cost. I mean, arguably combat comes at a health cost. But right. in terms of keeping lower back injuries at bay, it's interesting to see the relationship to the upper back tightness. And then interesting, that, that transfers to shoulders too. Very often I see shoulders, um, stuff I see a lot at the minute is just the, the upper traps are just mm. like, concrete the bane traps the lower traps yes. non-existent and the upper back is that. rounded <laughs> yeah so the giveaway traps that seems to contribute a lot to the the shoulder the shoulder issues so yeah there's lots of injuries in grappling but very often yeah they boil down to to what's going on sort of further up or further down the chain what, what do you say to the trainers and coaches that say like we need to fix that forward hunch I think only if it's detrimental to things and also what's the sacrifice reward relationship for the person in question, right? I know plenty of people that would let their arms snap in competition if there's, you know, a hundred bucks on the table, right? Yeah. That's crazy. To me, that's 
a bit extreme, but there are people yeah, that health and combat sports yeah. don't really they don't really <laughs> align. So, so yeah. when you're training a professional grappler and you have a coach say, "Oh, that's not healthy," it's like that's not. Let's like, not look really at what we're doing like here relative. right it's, now. Yeah, it's not really yeah. part relative. Of the, it's not really part of the conversation. So I think if if it's not detrimental, if the posture is not detrimental to their health goals and their career goals. There's not really a problem as what far as we can see. What would you detrimental too? Because you'll hear a lot of combat sport athletes are constantly in pain, but it's manageable functioning pain. So mm-hmm. what, what, how do you cross the threshold to detrimental? Well, ultimately it's not my choice, is it? Mm. It's their choice. It's their career. It's yeah. not my choice. So can it's, you it's live their with choice. Yeah, yeah, it's up to yeah. them. It's up to them, isn't it? Really, They're, the definition of detrimental is their definition. Yeah, it's got it's got nothing to do with me, especially if they're employing me. Yeah. If I'm employed to get them a gold medal and to contribute to that process, detriment yeah. is open ended definition as far as they see fit. It's not up to me. Yeah. I can make suggestions yeah. and say, hey man, you know, hip replacement at forty might not be where Oof. we want to go. Yeah, but at the same time. Some people will take a hip replacement at 40 if it means legacy. Yeah. Look at Dan Gable, right? Dan Gable had a hip replacement in his, I think his early 40s. Right. I think on 43, he was on crutches. Don't quote me on that number, but it was young as an athlete yeah. goes, right? But legacy, man, it's Dan Gable. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's really interesting cons. to see the differences in injuries between like striking sports and grappling sports. You're going to see way more hip replacements and broken limbs and well, it's manipulation of every joint you can yeah. get your hands on really whereas boxing exactly. you're, you're probably dealing with a lot of i mean correct me if i'm wrong overuse injuries yep. sort of like physiological physiological adaptations to sort of that that posture that's needed yeah. and also head trauma yeah and then how does snc really contribute to preventing head trauma yeah uh which is also a question yeah right yeah. like neck, you can yeah. train the neck, neck but training. ultimately even every you're time still you, getting hit. Yeah. yeah every it's time you block like a punch a, on your gloves, you're getting hit. Tactics and yeah. skills. Yeah. Strategy. Like you of, need to go to a gym that kind of reiterates like hit and don't get hit. Yes. Yeah. Which everyone says, <laughs> but which not everyone follows through. Has evolved though, because old school boxing, like it was like, here, come on over here, take your headgear, like in your I'll mouth, one piece off, one. and I'm going to tee one off on yeah, you and yeah. we'll inoculate you to getting punched by giving you brain trauma. Like it has come a long way, mm-hmm. a long way. You're seeing a lot more um, emphasis being put on the brain health aspect of all sports, actually, but boxing it's as well. It's so hard in boxing, though, it, to hit and not get point. hit. It's yeah. so hard. You're to in a, you're in a in confined face. space yeah. and the, it's measured on damage and points scored on yeah. landing. And it's right. not it's as entertaining. Hard. And combat sports at the end of the day is, yeah. or sports in general is about entertainment. Yes. It's what fun is. Yes. It. Well, you get the enthusiasts, right, who watch these fights that are like beautiful chess matches and we're all like, that was fantastic. And like the common fan is like, that was so fucking boring. Yeah. Like yeah. I can't get that time what back. We're like, what are you sport? talking about? That was Im- incredible, right? Yeah. And that's, I have a feeling that's what we're going to see with uh, Crawford and Errol Spence. I think it'll be exciting, but I also think it, it's a boxing fans fight. It's yeah. not, it's not a slugfest. It's not, it's not going to be that yeah. at all. Yeah. Interesting. Um, wow. Cool. Okay. So Jeff, what are your biggest coaching influences? Like how did you kind of hone the person that you are and how you present that as a professional, who influenced you along the way? I've brought a lot of principles from my time with strength athletes. Mm. So that kind of set the base for everything. How do I progress from week to week? How do I nail down all the compound lifts? And then I kind of merged that with my experiences being around fighters and training myself. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like two worlds colliding, like bridging the gap. We got like the strength training side, and then we got the 
scales training side where I'm taking exercises like like high rep sit-ups and I'm merging that with more modern strength training exercises like cable wood choppers and med ball slams. Mm. So um, I don't know. It's hard for me to like drop names right now, but there are a lot of strength coaches and combat sports coaches, which I look up to and I've kind of taken a bit from everyone Mm -hmm. and kind of making my own thing. Yeah. Making my own philosophies. Yeah. Um, age, same question to you. Yeah, coaching influences on the SNC side, I guess, names that come to mind. I've got to drop Matt Church in the mix, owner of Locker 27 in the UK. Shout Matt out was, to Matt. Yeah, absolute legend yeah. and influenced me a large degree with my approach to coaching and how to learn to be a better coach. Uh, Will Wayland, um, sort of a, a mutual friend that's one and, for, that's one for me as and well. influence for both of us. Yeah, followed Will a long time with his articles around um, MMA and jujitsu SNC, uh, Dan John as well. Dan mm-hmm. John's an old, old boy now, I guess in the SNC coaching scene, but mm-hmm. he actually has influenced me quite a bit just on his simplicity around distilling principles into kind of layman terms. Mm-hmm. He's one of the few coaches that can actually write and, and do that. And then, uh, Mr. Jovanovic, Mr. Strength Manual. Yeah, yeah. He's awesome. He was one of the first people I read that actually explained coaching, how it actually is mm. not, what it should be and what the it's lab definition is. Yeah. Cause he's, he's no longer really in the S and C scene, but mm. he has a book out that's probably like my favorite book. Yeah. It's so in to terms the of S and C. Yeah. It's like, this is the first guy to actually say, okay, you might think this is what the lab suggests. Mm-hmm. This is what the textbook says. This is what the data shows, but you go and coach this shit mm-hmm. to a group of people. Here's what's going to happen. Right. And it's true. Like a lot of his accounts are, are very accurate. So huh. I, I really liked his, his influence on, on, on reading his material of just how to the point and kind of, um, the opposite of the dry academia speak that often yeah. creeps into a lot of these texts. It was the opposite. It was very much conversational tone, yeah, dealing with, I mean, his prima donna accounts of uh, <laughs> soccer players being princesses, I thought was hilarious. Is this shocking, though, based on the sport? <laughs> Not at all, shocking? but the fact that a coach had the balls to put that in text yes. rather than yeah. being like, yeah, 3 yeah. by 12 gets this. He's like, yeah. no, no, you say 3 by 12 to this princess and they're going to spit at you. And it's yeah. like, no no coach had ever spoken like that. I yeah. thought that was very refreshing. It opened my eyes to coaching and like athlete management. Athlete like management, good yeah. s is more than just exercises. It's <laughs> yeah. risk to benefit ratios or uh, reward to benefits. Um, it's agile planning, planning on the fly. Mm. Yeah, there's so many of those soft skills that don't even get yeah. right. time of day. On the jiu-jitsu front for me, the two biggest influences I'd say, yeah, John Danaher, massive. Mm-hmm. love him or hate him he's by far the most impressive sports performance coach in my opinion of all time mm-hmm. with how many people he's taken from arguably non-championship status to championship status and mm-hmm. I'd include George St. Pierre in that who, in who that list there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot haters. of Danaher, Danaher haters uh, probably more in the consumption of his information and the right. way that he delivers information because he came from a um, a university professor degree level mm-hmm. PhD level of yeah philosophy at Columbia from what I understand that's only really going to appeal to a very small amount yeah. of people let alone Definitely fighters heads. Yeah, yeah. If you don't want to if you want to be entertained you're not listening to John Dan. yeah I, I could listen to him talk all day though. so could I, I listen I, to I, his I, podcast yeah, like so could so I, I think he's a fascinating guy and I genuinely think he's one of the most committed combat sports coaches of all time and his track record speaks for itself. I don't think there's anyone who has a track record as impressive as him. Yeah. Uh, and then a chap who's come into my um, sort of 
realm more recently, Greg Souders from Standard Jiu-Jitsu. Um, I think he's in Maryland. Uh, takes the ecological approach quite kind of brazenly to, towards skill development in, in grappling. But I like the fact he's talking about it because, you know, we can talk about this another time, but I think the way grappling is taught is broken. Right. And he's big on explaining that as to why and how to, how to improve that. So those two guys have been a massive influence Can you explain what you mean by ecological approach? Yeah, it's a pretty uh, jargony name for just basically the environment will dictate the response as mm. opposed to you recalling a technique under pressure. Mm. Uh, arguably recalling a technique under pressure is difficult to do, whereas if you recognize the pattern in front of you, the response will come much faster. And it's much easier for someone to recognize environmental shifts than it is to recall a list of techniques. Mm. Um, so like yeah. the coach doesn't teach the technique, he sets the environment to, to which the athlete learns. Yeah, the, the technique is elicited by a result of the environment. The coach doesn't have to explicitly give instruction. Mm. They might just give guidelines. And it's another coaching tool which we use in S&C all the time, but perhaps S&C as a career is not based around that. Hmm. But there's argument to be said that coaching grappling could be based around that. And that's what Mr. Souders is trying to kind of represent is that he doesn't explicitly explain technique yeah. at all. And in his whole training program is right. based around environmental factors, right. which is fascinating to me. Coaches hmm. who work with youth and like young kids almost know this better than... Yeah. A lot of expert yeah, coaches. Yeah. yeah, they have yeah. to. Kids do not. You can't tell them, hey, hey, kid, like do fifty reps of this, fifty reps of that. No, like they know how to create games yes. to which the kids can explore their own movements, their own decisions. And they funnel themselves into a desired outcome. Exactly. Really. If, yeah, you're, if funneling, the coach, you're funneling, yeah, you're funneling the, yeah. the athletes into whichever Just, direction that you want them to. Yeah. Instead of hand feeding them, hey, do right. reps yeah. of this, reps of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Anyone that's worked with kids will know. I remember I taught a wrestling workshop once to a load of rugby boys and they were like seven to 10 years old. I think it was a favor for a friend. Yeah. And uh, I learned Hard, hardest, very quickly. Hardest population to work with. Oh right. man, Shout I had my the, little piece of paper yeah. with all my things on within yeah. the first three You're seconds. You're like throwing it in the garbage. Oh, it was screwed up in my pocket. I was like, yeah. you can forget that. Yeah. I was like, it's game time boys, let's go. And yeah. had to shift my entire approach. Right. So give us a, why don't you guys both each dip into grappling and then dip into boxing and kind of give us an example of a scenario that like you would use to funnel someone into a desired outcome by using a game or a scenario. I can go for grappling if you want yeah, and yeah. start yeah, things yeah, off. So I guess like a simple one in, in jujitsu terms would be in order to control somebody, right? Control someone on the floor, there needs to be a connection. And that connection needs to be a lot of surface area. So either your chest to their chest is a common one, or what you kind of think of as pinning, or your chest to their back, which we kind of understand as like the, the back control or the back mount, as it were. Mm. How can you find your way there? Because if you can get there and you can be on the offensive portion of that, you can, you can dominate the pin. So you can... In, in jiu-jitsu especially, we do a position. There's so many positions. So you would zoom into a position and then you'd give guidelines for the game, for mm -hmm. the drill, for the exploration. Try and find your way in this position to a chest-to-chest -chest mm -hmm. scenario. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's like the only guideline you'll give. Once you Once you yeah. get the chest-to-chest -chest connection, keep it, keep it for... <laughs> The rest of this round, right. for example. Right. And how yes. does that translate to boxing? Same in boxing. You set the rules of the game or the objectives instead of using clear instructions, right? Yes. So at Quinnett Boxing, shout out to John. Shout out John um, Quinnett. What's up, John? 
what we'll do is we'll do tech sparring and one partner will have um, their lead hand only might be a straight lead straight other partner gets a rear hook and then just with those dynamics alone you get a lot of movement options that the athletes get to explore whether it's circling to one specific side or limiting shot selections mm-hmm. um yeah just setting the rules strip and strip it down yeah, i strip think it that down. is so important especially in a in a combat sport that involves you know head 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 trauma mm-hmm. that sparring is contextual as yeah, the majority of the time sparring. situational when i first started it was like all right we're fucking sparring gloves on it was like and it was like the coach's energy set the stage like we're fighting oh fuck it's we're a fight fighting. with headgear yeah it's 100%. not really drilling and it was so unsafe and i've i've seen you know and then and then you know you don't have enough people so like i'll oh, bring this one in and there's like a 50 pound weight difference and someone gets a concussion and they never box again you know and i've seen shit like that now we're starting to see boxing i think people taking the, the training a little bit more seriously and then you guys got you got guys like you know vasily lomachenko who Rarely spars, not rarely spars, but obviously his sparring. I think well, probably the majority of his sparring is very contextual, situational. There's an objective. It's not just a free-for-all slugfest. And I think that's so important, especially for boxing, um, because it's one wrong puncher, you know, two guys, two girls, whatever, throw their right hands at the same time and step in. And mm-hmm. next thing you know, you're seeing stars and, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're potentially in a bad position. And I think that that's crucial for the longevity of an athlete in boxing. Yeah, at Quinnet Boxing, we've had to deal with a few like concussions over the last year. And, and so we've been learning happen. how to yeah. learning how to deal with it. It's really humbling for sure. Yeah, because it's gonna put athletes out for months. Yes, and they want to fight, they want to train, but it's better for them to kind of rest up, yeah. especially as coaches who care. Yeah, about our athletes. And I think it's really safer. It's better for boxers to explore the ability to, to utilize new technique or to try something different if the environment is stripped down, mm-hmm. right? There's less there's less variables. There's mm-hmm. less risk of injury. They can yep. experience something without necessarily the the repercussions of like a fight. And I think that's crucial, crucial for boxing. Um, Quinnett, how did you get linked up with that crew? Because you are the coach to once we we were talking about this in the pre-show. Four fighters that are going to be on our card. Four fighters on the card. Yeah, because we got River. We got Kadir, we got Logan. And we got Rhett and as well. And Asia's also worked with Logan, so that's kind of fun. Uh, and then we got Rhett. So yeah. how did you link up with those with those guys? Um, there was a coach at Quinnett. Uh, shout out to Adrian. He was shout a fighter Adrian. and yeah. a coach there. And when I, was in, when I was living in Thailand, I worked with him remotely mm-hmm. with the program during COVID. And we had like... We did one or two months together, unfortunately, and he got um, he got COVID. Actually, he got really sick, so oh. he had to take a lot of time off. But after that, he gave me a shout to John and Rebecca, sick, and said, "Hey, like this is a good coach. Maybe he'll fit in our team." Mm-hmm. So when I moved back to Vancouver, um, we had a chat and just went from there. Like mm-hmm. we clicked instantly. Like they were willing to bring me on. So it shows a lot of humility because mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of gyms in the lower mainland no. has invested not enough. Not only in an SNC coach, but like a sports nutritionist. We have like a seasonal like psychologist that comes and does seminars for us. John so, is so invested. Yeah. In the just the incomplete package of how his his athletes perform, and I think that's that should be the standard. Yeah, and it's special for me because I'm not only handling the SNC, but 
they're giving me a say in how we develop the high performance team and mm -hmm. how the athletes develop. So mm -hmm. I didn't realize that was what I wanted to do as well, but yeah. that gave me a lot of freedom to nice. work with and athletes outside of the SNC. Yeah. And I think that that would be probably a place that you would like to see grappling gyms approach their competitors as well. Yeah, I guess if uh, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because at the amateur level in jiu-jitsu, there's no money in competition at all. So you, like you said earlier, you pay to compete. Uh, so yeah, it would be cool just, I guess, for the sake of strength and conditioning mm. and, and grappling and the benefits it can provide to, mm. to both parties to see it go that way. Yeah, for sure. And like arguably, if there's no development of amateurs, there's no, uh, no one turns pro and no one ends up doing this and then there's never any pros. So you almost have to start at that amateur level and kind of like foster that, that performance. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing it with like the, the Cole Abates and the, the up and comers in jujitsu that are, they're starting at like four or five years old. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's coming, it's coming. Jujitsu is definitely yeah. turning a corner in kind of its, its exposure and its popularity and its approach to taking S&C seriously. Uh, it was always kind of the the grappling joke that the lifting equipment in the gym was just dust gathering and a place to hang the geese, <laughs> yeah. you know. And if I've been to plenty of gyms where the racks have been dusty and, yeah. it, you know, wiped the tear from my eye. But I think that will change change soon, mm. especially now you're seeing with like the rise of ADCC and yeah. worlds being big on, on YouTube, even for non-grapplers clicking in, non-grapplers buying tickets to the shows. It's going to it's going to have to take S and C mm. more seriously because the athletic performance level is going to improve and increase. So mm -hmm. that can only be backed by a sound foundation yeah. in, in sports performance, really. Yeah. Well, I think just the rums are, you know, empty now. So I think now's a great time to dive into the landmine press. And with oh, no. the, <laughs> <laughs> with the rise of jujitsu as well. And like the attention on ADCC and all these people, I think more gen pop is getting excited about the sport of jujitsu. A lot of people are trying it. Everyone in their fucking mom and girlfriend are trying jujitsu nowadays, which is cool. All eyes turn to Instagram for everything they want to know and learn. Um, and and boxing's been there for a minute. People coming in looking for, mm -hmm. you know, sports-specific conditioning and sports-specific movements. And I think now it's happening in grappling as well. Do you troll? Do you laugh and enjoy yourself while you do it? Uh, and what drives you fucking nuts about Instagram and and like it, the prescription of SNC for jujitsu? Come on, boys, let's go. Well, let's go. Harry and I troll all the time. <laughs> maybe Do you him, guys have like more, a private chat? More than me. Maybe I'm like a. I'm, I'm not like gonna. A he, goes, he goes after guys. On I'm Instagram. gonna just pretend yeah. like I don't know what H does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a more passive aggressive about it now. I'll make memes about things I don't like. Amazing. Repost yeah. this guy is shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm more. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I do it less, but I'm more blunt. Jeff will actually Crazy. turn it into a into a meme, which arguably travels much further anyway Crazy. on Instagram, which is. Uh, I've funny. I've went after guys like yeah. directly, but it's just not worth. Do they now. block you in the end, or what's the deal? No. Really? Because I don't tag them. Ah. I'm not brave enough to tag them. Not brave enough. Because they're a little more passive aggressive. Okay, yeah, so because yeah. <laughs> I, I want to spend some time and 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 just chat shit about this for a second. But so let's start with the let's start with the landmine punch because we've been alluding through coming back to this, and here we are. If you've been watching this podcast for the last hour, waiting for this moment, here you are. The landmine So the landmine punch. Talk to us about the landmine. Punch. I don't hate the exercise. I hate what the, the exercise represents. Ah, okay. The exercise represents. A, an influx of SNC coaches wanting to work with fighters. And the best way to do that is put your foot in the door. Hey, like uh, this exercise looks like a punch. 
So like that kind of shows I know boxing and like striking and combat sports, right? Right. So they'll kind of like over-prescribe that. They'll put too many marbles in that basket. Right. Whereas boxing is much more complex than a landmine punch. Sure. And you're going to get way more training benefits out of simple movements. And is a landmine punch even effective as a punch development tool? It's not even in the same plane as a punch. Yeah, it's not in the same plane. I don't think any one exercise is effective. It's like the integration of all the exercises together. Right. I think landmine punches are okay, just like squats are okay for boxing, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to become a better boxer just by squatting. Right. Directly, at least. Yeah. And you're not going to become a better boxer doing landmine punches, but I'd have to look at like the whole program and see what this coach does right. for me to make a judgment about it. Right. So speaking of judgment, what... <laughs> Yeah, Passive yeah. aggressive Jeff. Yeah. What is your least favorite Instagram flash boxing sports specific exercise that you see thrown around there? Jason's loving this part. <laughs> uh, punching with heavy dumbbells. Oh yeah, like oh, a five pounder. Yeah, just, five and they pounder. can get about eight yeah. inches. I like away one or two chest. pounders. Right. Because you have all these scientists saying, "Oh, it's not even in the same plane." But any boxer will know it's sometimes about feel. Right. Your shoulders feel good with one or two pound dumbbells and. That's part of the sport. Well, and it's very that's not part of S and C, but that's part yeah. of boxing. Yeah. And S and C coaches don't respect that because one, they don't know the culture, or two, they don't train. Yeah. So you got to merge the two, and that's where I think bridging the gap concept comes from. Right. Right. Um, landmine punches, obviously. Uh, anything like Joel Seidman does, you know. Give uh, us any tell tell any gimmicky shit. Yeah. Like I, you just named someone, by the way, too. Should we tag yeah, him on this as well him, and him. Make, post a reel? Would you repost it? Yeah, I'll repost it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. He doesn't need any more exposure. <laughs> He's done enough. All I do is stir the pot. Okay, so um, Joel Seedman, what's he doing that's stupid? Um, I think there's a, <laughs> there's a video of one of his athletes like holding a trap bar and he's just like smacking his head with an exercise ball. Love it. Is and he like, rushing? Oh, it's, it's neck training. Is he? No. Because <laughs> you guys, we have these Russian coaches on the beach with their guys, like with their hands behind their head and they're just getting. It's funny because when. Russian coaches do something silly. Yeah. It's like cooler, you know? It's like, oh, it's Soviet. Yeah. yeah. But when we do it, like when North Americans because do it, it's like... Because they're actually gnarly as yeah. fuck. Those are some tough psychos. And you know, like, they've developed their athletes over time, and yeah. you know the Soviet development system, so right. you're more willing to give it some room, give it the benefit of the yeah. doubt. Fair. And they've got some secret juice that they might use <laughs> behind the scenes, too. Yeah. Um, Age, what are your, like, least favorite things that you see that you love to hate on? Yeah, well, I guess a big one for me is it looks like the sport, so let's load it mm. and therefore it will improve. Mm. So whether it's, yeah, what, what I post the other day, the rubber bands around your ankles, ankles. Yeah. doing like kick throughs and grappling with a dummy does nothing. Mm. Uh, yeah, on that logic, we should load forward rolls with a weighted vest, right. you know, and that will get us better at grappling. It just doesn't work or you know, play guard on your back with a barbell on your bare feet. Like it just, it doesn't, it looks like the sport, but it's not the sport. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the biggest fallacies. Now there's an infinite number of variations on that statement that you'll see on Instagram because it gets views and it gets, gets clicks, it gets likes, yeah. but it annoys me. Uh, and it annoys me when a coach will just post that for traction or to sell a product or a, or a service when that's not helping white belts. Let's right. see that. That's not, that's not really helping them. Uh, another one is 
people that are, I guess, more in like the personal training space and are not taking the initiative to go into the S&C space with reading and looking at studies and, you know, furthering their education, but then posting strength and conditioning advice for grapplers mm. or just combat sports athletes in general. The guy I hate on all the time is just does it all the time. And I'm just like, this guy's, (laughs) well, I don't want him to get more publicity. You see, right? Fair. that's why I never tag these guys. Yeah. I just, I screenshot them because I don't want them getting more money for what they're doing. You know, if you're already got 20,000 followers and you're converting a 2% follow rate into money, Mm -hmm. that's money. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, you do the math on that. That's money. This guy's making money off selling. Mm memberships and programs he that must are have heard Arnie say everything is selling yeah and he you know arguably he's a good marketer these mm-hmm. guys are good marketers but unfortunately marketing doesn't create improved sports performance mm-hmm. really you know science has got a better track record so yeah I guess the people that are marketers posing as coaches mm-hmm. and then the people that load sporting movements and just assume that that's going to transfer they're probably two of my two of my biggest ones. It's SNC coaches trying to insert themselves into the combat sports space without actually going into it, without doing the trench work mm-hmm. or without doing some of the training themselves. Yeah. I know. I, I I often post this debate up just for you know interesting sort of feedback from people. Do you need to do the sport in order to be an SNC coach for it? That's and really I think I guess ultimately no, you don't, because you know there's a lot of sports, and SNC coaches can contribute to probably more sports than they can be an expert or a champion in. Mm. However, I think in combat sport, let's take the punching with dumbbells example, like Jeff just mentioned. If you're not part of boxing, you won't understand the culture and the heritage mm. that has. And like Jeff said, it's about feel. You won't have that. And not then everything makes sense on the. On the Physical surface, level. yeah, or, or sort of to, it can't to the, be explained by yeah, science. By right? a study, there's no studies on punching with dumbbells. So what are you going to do? You know, it's a, it's a cultural thing. But the fighters reporting positively about that, mm-hmm. right? They're getting a positive benefit for that. So you've got to take that into account. If you boxed though, mm-hmm. much easier process, right? So I actually think for combat sports, there's a lot more mileage for the coach on the S and C side to have some involvement, mm-hmm. and it makes your life so much easier when it comes to load management on behalf of the athlete. You know, if an athlete's just told you, yeah, man, I had like a nine out of 10 sparring session last night. And if you've done a nine out of 10 sparring session, you can relate. You know what that means. Rather than just- too with your athletes. I think so. I think so. A lot of the guys I work with trust me because I grapple. Mm -hmm. Right. They don't trust me necessarily education I've done or how many followers I've got. You know, how many gold medals I haven't produced. <laughs> they trust me because I grapple and I can relate to their mm-hmm. concerns and their questions. And I think I think in combat sports it's actually it actually goes further for the S and C coach to take part. Mm. I agree. Wow. With everything. Yeah, yeah. It, it it rings super true. I I I think that I think that there is a level of buy-in and, you know, that, that goes back to even just the athlete having the, like the buy-in enough to communicate with you effectively so you can help coach them through it. If they know that, you know, I think they're probably more likely to be honest and, and to, you know, log their stuff and tell you how their sparring was and stuff as well. If you, if you understand their language, if you can speak their language on some level, yeah. but I agree, I don't think all coaches are great athletes. I don't think all the great athletes are capable of being great coaches and arguably being an athlete at the highest level takes so much of you mentally, physically, your time. You can't be the best, like a high level coach and a high level, a competitive athlete at the same time. Yeah, so, different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, for to sure. To be an athlete, you have to be really selfish and 
as a coach, you got to be selfless. Yeah, absolutely. Like you don't have to train to be a decent strength coach, but I feel like all the coaches, S and C coaches I look up to in the combat sports space, like they all train. It was more, it's more of a question of why wouldn't you train? Mm-hmm. If you love that sport so much and you're working with athletes in that sport, why yeah. wouldn't, why wouldn't you train? Yeah. Just yeah, that's a great like, way of putting yeah, it. We're not trying to get our foot in the door with combat sports athletes to make money. There's yeah. no money. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> oh, Hang on. There's no money. Cut me in then, bro. There's, <laughs> there's, no, there's no money. I think, it's a, I think it's a long grind. I think it's a long grind to get to that place. Yeah, I don't even think it's here yet. It's not like it's not like SNC for soccer or pro rugby. Mm-hmm. You do yeah. a, you do a three year internship. You can get on the ten year yeah. ladder to on, yeah. a, on a six figure yeah. salary if you work in pro soccer or pro rugby. You can't do that in MMA. It's like yeah. we <laughs> joked about in the beginning of the podcast. It's like a lot of SNC coaches for fighters. They all say, "Yeah, fighters don't have any money. I make yeah. money through Gen Pop." Yeah, yeah, that's how it, even that's like how it works. some of the top coaches that kind of influence us we've heard it from them too yeah they, sure. they got it they, they you know they'll, they'll like we be, know guys that train like UFC fighters but they're like yeah, yeah. I make my money off of the gym yeah. training yeah. gym pop a classes. UFC athlete doesn't come to you and go hey man so I'm getting paid five grand to show five grand to win and I'm going to pay you I'm going to pay you 33% of that 10 grand if I win never <laughs> said by any yeah. UFC athlete in history yeah. Yeah. what happens is when you make the top five and you're 120 grand to show and 120 grand to win, you chat with your team about cutting people in because yeah. you can afford it. Yeah. But until then... And you've been with them for yeah, a, a decade. Years. You've yeah, developed yeah. them, right? Yeah. There's a big yeah. difference There's with a, like working with an athlete than developing them. Yeah. yeah. People cut in at the pro level and they'll be like, yeah, yeah, look, look who's on my client roster. It's like, no, no, you jumped on the bandwagon because they're top 10. Mm. You didn't get them to the top 10. Massive difference, right? And yeah. even so, how many people out of your population that you do train, your client base, yeah. have got the potential to make it top five to earn 240 grand to cut you in? Fair. Probably less than 1%. So, yeah. so to bank on the fact that you're going to make money out of these guys is, is stupid and naive. It's yeah. not how you earn your money. So we don't get into it for that. So coming full circle, if you're grinding this much in a game that doesn't really pay that much, mm-hmm. you might as well enjoy the time on the mat or in the ring mm-hmm. or hitting the bag, mm-hmm. right? You might as well enjoy mm-hmm. it because you're, you're not there for the bucks, right? Yeah, it sounds like show. You have to enjoy well. something about it, whether it's watching it or being involved in the culture. But the best way to do that is to train. Yeah. So. To train. Yeah. I'm always skeptical of people pumping out programs for said combat sport. I have never dipped into it or yeah. tried like one class Yeah. or like, yeah, one of my clients showed me like a couple of things one time. That's not, that's not training in the sport. Yeah. I think I you, watch UFC, bro. Yeah. I watch, yeah. I'm, I'm a Saturday night <laughs> pay-per-viewer. Yeah. I, okay. So you're an authority. No, I think actually, you know, putting in five plus years into the sports that you're coaching these guys on is just goes such a long way. Yeah. But because athletes don't have, or fighters don't have that much money, mm-hmm. there's a big misconception that like, I'm not going to invest in a sports nutritionist, an SNC coach, a physiotherapy, yeah. a thera- physiotherapist until I get into the top five or top 10. Well, you might, yeah, you might not But like, you're not going to make it if yeah. you don't start earlier. Yeah, such a good point. You might not make it if you're the first guy injured or you don't make weight a couple times. Yeah. Yeah, Which absolutely. for fighters, if you're listening, is why you have to be smart about approaching a sponsorship deal. Yeah. If you don't have the money to pay for these things, but you're getting exposure, you can leverage that exposure. You know, yeah. you can talk about that. You can communicate that. Good yes. coaches will be open to sponsorship and entertaining what yes. that means for both of you. Just because you don't have the money doesn't mean you, ha- you know, you have to wait, like Jeff says, till top five. Absolutely. Till you start thinking about these things. You've got to think about them 
you know, before you go pro, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. And if you can't afford that, how can you leverage that in other ways? There's many ways mm-hmm. to barter and exchange of services and skills. Absolutely. That doesn't just have to be financial. Or even investing your time, doing a little bit of research, finding the yeah. good programs, yeah. differentiating yeah. between like yeah. the good advice and the bad. It's yeah, difficult. totally. It's difficult. Like we, you know, we run into it all the time with uh, just getting fighters to do anything outside of their camp at all. Get mm-hmm. their medicals done. There's no fight if you don't get your medical done. <laughs> But it's like the, 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 that extra little bit of effort outside of their camp or thinking, hmm, you know what, I'm going to market myself effectively so that I get these opportunities thrown at me so that I can improve or make more money or sell more tickets with my code so I can pump my purse up. They're not thinking outside like of their camp. Like a professional camp. athlete. They're yes. thinking like a fighter. They're thinking, well, you gotta yeah, be both. exactly. And they're thinking like a young fighter, a young fighter that I don't have a, you know, a camp. You know, it's like, okay, what if you want to have a career in this, it's not going to be handed to you. You have to, you have to be very, very hungry and market yourself. And arguably we have free tools right now at our fingertips that are extremely powerful marketing tools, especially if you're doing shit, like hanging out in the gym and hitting pads and looking dope all day, take some videos, tag some people. It's not that challenging, but you know, to echo what you guys are saying, I mean, we, we see that on the promotion side as well. Mm. We're like, yo, if you just like put a two percent of your energy into marketing yourself this stuff will be this will it will it will grow exponentially in your benefit in the future um and yeah it, the it, days of like being just a fighter and just training mm-hmm. it's it's over it's over we're mm-hmm. past you gotta that be an athlete. you we're gotta stay that. accountable to yeah. your coaches to your yeah interdisciplinary team and we've all seen everyone. all the fighters that have done a really good job of shortcutting it right yeah mcgregor's the obvious one yeah. Right. Skill set wise. What do you mean shortcutting it? He shortcutted the process by using marketing. Right. Mm. McGregor rose to the top far faster than anyone because of his post fight interviews. Mm-hmm. In my opinion. And he trained super hard as well. He, he, he backed it up. He yeah. won. You know, he won in impressive fashion. He understood the relevance of the marketing component. It was, it was into huge. Where he and you've, to go. you can watch his career it, purely in post fight interviews and see how he's changed his marketing approach. Yeah. He started with using Ireland as the backing call, which was very yeah. clever. Use a national support factor, mm-hmm. you can go mm-hmm. further. So he used Ireland to get far. Once he got far, he started then converting into mm-hmm. his own business interests and promoting himself because he had the self leverage to do that. Yeah. But he he played the game perfectly, in my opinion, in rising to the ranks faster, getting the title shots quicker, landing bigger sponsorship deals faster. Uh, and more impressively, simply by marketing himself in a more intelligent fashion. Now, you could argue that's a personality thing, mm. but you you know, there's such a thing as media training. Yeah, you can learn how to come across better on camera. You know, how many foreign fighters do you see that just refuse to learn English? Yeah, I was about yeah. to Your say. paycheck's cut, man. Exactly. Your yeah. paycheck's cut. I'm, yeah. It's biased and it's prejudiced and it sucks. But hey, yeah. look at all the ones that do learn English, how yeah. much more money they make. Yeah. There's no coincidence. Right? Yeah. Well, and, and saying like, oh, you know, I'm just a fighter. Like, I'm not focused on, you know, selling tickets and this shit. It's like, well, you're probably not going to look Eddie Hearn in the eyes and be like, yeah, man, I'm not really going to sell some tickets. Like, you're not on the show. You're not on the show. So ultimately, if you have, a, if you want to have a career, you either have to be so outstandingly impressive at just your skill set, or you have to develop skill sets outside of boxing or grappling or MMA. And one of them's way easier than the other. <laughs> yeah. Way yeah, easier. They, I yeah. feel like fighters feel like doing all that other stuff, like marketing kind of diminishes them they as feel like a fighter. It's, it's a but like, It's not. Yeah, it's you can train you. hard and... Yeah market yourself yeah that's yeah. just you just got to find the way to do it that feels integral yes it's, which, it's about applying your yeah. voice to it and yeah. making it your own which absolutely same goes with coaches that. like some coaches are yes. happy just oh i'm just training athletes i'm not going to post anything yeah. and they almost feel 
like an imposter trying to market themselves. Like, yeah. I certainly felt that way in the beginning well, of my career. we've all seen cringy marketing too that yeah. kind of makes your skin crawl and you're like, oh, I don't want to be like that. But you don't have to be like that. Yeah. And you can still do it. Yeah. And then coaching is fascinating. Well, because our predecessors, you know, thinking strength and conditioning is a very new industry on yeah. paper. It's only, you know, about 30 odd years old, if mm -hmm. that. The, our predecessors didn't have to market themselves in the same digital fashion because the technology was different when they mm -hmm. were coming up. Mm -hmm. Most of our predecessors are also based in professional team sports mm -hmm. or professional sports, i.e. the pre-combat sport era, mm -hmm. right? Like combat sports S&C is very, very new very because new. UFC was only coming around since the early 90s. Yeah. So it's even newer. But our generation and, and, and below need to learn the marketing aspect of what we do if you want to not be lost in the noise. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just the lay of the land now mm. you can sit around and sulk about that and miss jobs yeah or you can like you say invest a couple of percent of your energy into that and start mm. landing jobs yeah. so you know it's up to you really but to ignore it it's stupid because yeah. the the world is moving at a different pace now yeah. to to the mid 90s Absolutely. so you've got to you've got to try and stick out in a pretty noisy noisy realm right yeah. as a, especially as a coach absolutely Jeff, what's next for you heading into kind of the remainder of, of 2023? Um, focus on the boxing team, focus on my athletes around the world, a lot of remote coaching. Might do some more traveling by the end of the year. Yeah. But and Jeff's jet lag right now. He's, he's putting in a, an incredible effort. Yeah, yeah. All the way from, you were in like I Turkey. I went to London, in... I went to Turkey, I yeah. went to Kazakhstan. Wow. So it was mega trip. Wow. Mega trip for me. Amazing. I got back, started working right off the plane. Yeah. 18-hour flight. So. You're a difficult man to lock down, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> He's a busy boy. Yeah. Busy boy. Great. So just focusing on your athletes, your remote Focusing on my athletes, yeah. Awesome. Training right. harder, training more. Yeah. Um, get a fight in, son. Get yeah. a fight in. Yeah. Towards the I end mean, of the year, hey, why not? You want to yeah, make a pro debut in boxing? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> I don't I mean, have an amateur record for boxing. Hey, you know so. what? Boxing's too hard. Your way I'm gonna look the, the other way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just have a really great close <laughs> yeah, fight interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Landmine punches all <laughs> yeah, over yeah. your Instagram, no problem. Yeah. Um, Harry, what's uh, what's next for you as as you kind of enter into the halfway point in 2023? So yeah, the the online no more skinny grappler world is growing for me fast, which Boy. is great. Yeah, yeah. Can you do it once for the show? For you, <laughs> skinny grappler. <laughs> The catchphrase is working. Yeah, it's it's going really well with my my online group of folks, which is really fun. Uh, some in, exciting projects for me professionally that still can't quite speak about publicly yet, but some cool stuff behind the scenes, working with some other high level S and C coaches in the combat sports space. Uh, ADCC is coming up August nineteenth, hey. so lots of our guys are getting ready for that. I'm getting ready for that myself. Our club is too. Uh, so How do yeah. you balance the coaching and the competing together. Yeah, yeah it's difficult. It's difficult. Um, I have to portion off my time for coaching. I have to portion off my time for self-organization and, and planning my own stuff and what I need. Yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult, but it's a challenge I really enjoy. How about from like a mindset standpoint? Like I understand like scheduling off, okay, here, here's two to three hours for me to train, but do you have to make that switch from your training regimen to coaching someone else? Yes, Are you still sure. thinking about your own training while you're coaching? No, Are you thinking no, about coaching it's immersive for me on both parts. Yeah. So if I'm working with people, it's just all about them and yep. it's immersion into that. Usually when I'm doing that style of coaching, I'm on the sidelines and it's all eyes and voice. 
and, and pointing and whatever else other tools I, I use from a coaching perspective. When it's me and I'm immersed in it, then it's no coaching. It's literally yeah. black and white like that. It's the only way I can work it. I find it really difficult to step in and out of both roles within one time frame. It's just, it's one or the other. Do you have the urge to coach during like live roles or sparring or? Sometimes. you got to be selfish. Like, um, yeah, yeah, sometimes. If, especially it, if you like roll with your students or something. Yeah, some, it's sometimes. Yeah. If only if it's a mistake that's letting us both down. Yeah. So if my development is being impeded by that mistake and yeah. their development too, I'll yeah. mention it. But if it's just something that their development's being impeded, I'll just have to be selfish and be like, well, yeah, my point. time right now is not dedicated to good fixing point. that. I'm going to exploit that and, and use that to my advantage in, in the exchange. So yeah, I, I find blending really difficult. It's one or the other for me. Mm. And being on the sidelines makes the coaching much easier, i.e. not in grappling practice. Uh, and then when I'm in grappling practice and getting sweaty and all the rest of it, it's it's total immersion for me. But I, I enjoy that. I enjoy the challenge. Everything always comes full circle into being a better coach for me. All my competition experiences, all my mistakes, all the things I learn the hard way on the mat, I think contribute to to being a better coach uh, in grappling and also in in SNC too. Talking about for, full circle, my first ever podcast was on Harry's podcast. No during, during COVID 2020. Wow. Yeah, he was the first person to have me on. This that was a great first wow. effort, I must say. Fantastic. Great first effort. Maybe on your end. Yeah, that's cool, isn't it? Fast forward yeah. three, three years later. Oh my God, I love that. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. So it's only been three years? Oh, yeah. Three long fucking Three long years. fucking years. COVID yeah. was so long. Long years. One Tough of them years. felt like four years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Guys, I could talk to you guys all night. This has been fantastic. Yeah. Um, Jeff, I appreciate you and your busy travel schedule. Thanks for having me. Well. <laughs> Age busy. and your busy schedule, making the time to come <laughs> pleasure, on the podcast. Pleasure. Uh, we've got lots of, you know, athletes, boxing fans, coaches, cut men, commission, Y'all watching this episode, if you have questions for these guys, if you want to learn more about how to work with either of these guys, uh, we'll drop their Instagram handles, right? It's probably the best way to reach out to y'all. Yep. Give them a follow. They have some really interesting content. Uh, they're always showing and, and demonstrating um, themselves in the practice as well as how you guys work with your athletes. And, and I think having more people who really know what the fuck they're talking about in, in their respective sports is really important for, for the integrity of, of strength and conditioning as well as performance in, in combat sport that we know and love love so i appreciate you guys so much for coming on the show chatting shit about you know combat sports and your experiences through it and and all the training and all the hard work that you guys put into what you do thanks, thanks for having, having us, us. Thank yeah you. absolutely thank you this has been another episode of the empire boxing podcast i'm your host coach jay subscribe for more and thank you to dead man's fingers for the delicious rum that we easily cleaned up so if you want to hit them up and learn more about how to get your hands on a bottle of your own follow us and use our code empire 10 Make sure to listen, follow, and subscribe to Empire Boxing on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube.